and welcome. It's Jane Alexander, your host for the Women Count podcast, where we take a close look at the skills and experiences of inspiring female leaders and data scientists. It's such a pleasure today to introduce you to Pamitri Pillay, a partner lead at EY for the Australian Taxation Office and the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. And more recently, Pamitri has been awarded the Women in ICT's Wicked Woman of the Year. Pimentre has such a treasure trove of experiences in digital transformation with a distinct overlay of social justice and improving the lives of people in the communities in which we live. Pimentre grew up in a small town in South Africa and her social justice work started with her activism at school. In South Africa, Pimentre also helped to deliver the public participation program for the development of South Africa's post-apartheid constitution. After moving to Australia, Pimentre has supported a variety of leading government departments to deliver both social and digital transformation programs. Pimentre has always supported and mentored many people she works with. The combination of the close support of her immediate ecosystem and her philosophical approach to driving transformational change that delivers broad value to the community has led to Pimentre being awarded the Wicked Woman of the Year. Such an incredible and diverse journey for such an incredible and outstanding individual who is well-deserving of her recognition of the Women in ICT's Wicked Woman of the Year. Well, hello, Pimentri, and welcome to the Women Count podcast. Thank you, Jane. Lovely to be here. And thank you for coming to the studio today. It's a pleasure to be in your home studio and it's, I'm so impressed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, so before we start dissecting your life and your career, I wanted to say a very big congratulations for winning the Women in ICT Wicked Women of the Year Award. Congratulations. Thank you, Thank you Jane. It's a true privilege and I feel very humbled by the award. Well, it's a very coveted award and it's not easy to win that award. I know there's quite a stringent selection process and for people to get chosen. So what's that process like? It's interesting. I've been going to the WIC events and to previous years witnessing many others, many of our colleagues get the Wicked Women of the Year. And to your point, it isn't something that's easily gotten very worthy winners and nominees. My understanding, and it was a team of people, mostly people who you may mentor, who then nominate you. And certainly in my case, it was a group of EY women that nominated me. My understanding, it then goes to a selection committee who does a shortlist and then to another group, another committee, and a secret vote is done. So and they come up with a winner, which is amazing that it was me this year. I'm also fortunate that it's not only the wicked women that gets chosen. There's women who defy gravity. There's a student. There's the male champion. So it's really that composite group of people who are being recognised for their mentoring of women, promoting equity, and really making sure the ICT industry continues to support women and also encourage 
young girls and women to join the ICT industry. And, and I think it's also representative of so much more of the role and significant role women play in this industry. Mm-hmm. But, and again, congratulations. It's such a major achievement and it's Thank so well-deserved. A friend of mine who used to work with you at IBM, she once told me how you mentored her and she's still very grateful for your support. So I can imagine that your current team would feel very similar, so very well-deserved. Thank you. And as one goes through your career, it's really about the people mm-hmm. and there's nothing... I find more rewarding than spending some of my time helping others in their career because I've stood on so many shoulders of many women and great people and if I can offer that to others, that is the best part of the work we do and the legacy we leave. Mm, It's amazing and we need uh, more people like you, that's for sure. So so what is the expectation of you as the Wicked Woman of the Year? Gosh, I'm still discovering that, but I, I think it's making sure you continue that mentoring, continue the things that got you here. It also, you know, WIC has many events and they're a great organisation and people in Canberra would know, know them very well. It's the signature event in a year to go to the awards night, but just celebrate with your colleagues. But more than that, there are many breakfast events, many member-only events, and then broader community events that WIC do. And, and I would see myself as being partly a a part of that process of being present, being able to support other women. They also have work placement programs and EY supports that and hopefully we can continue to do more. And as I find each year WIC grows so significantly, I'm sure there's new and other tasks that will emerge too. So it sounds like you're going to have a very busy year. does sound like it. I'm looking forward to it. We'll see more of you on LinkedIn posts for sure with the work that you're doing. I try, but I, I try not to make it all about me because so yes. much of what I do is about the clients we serve, the difference we make, and hopefully the the many that we mentor and grow. And hopefully I can also put a spotlight on that. Yes, definitely. And thank you, Pimentre, for that clarification. But if you don't mind me saying, that approach just demonstrates one of the reasons you have been awarded the Wicked Woman of the Year. Talking of your experience in the IT industry, I'd like to talk about your journey and and what excites you and what's driven you to get where you are now. You are currently a partner with EY and the client service partner lead for the Australian Taxation Office and the Australian Securities and Investment Commission. Can you talk about your current role and the skills that you have developed to undertake this type of position? I've worked in public sector for a long time and had many leadership roles, both in other organisations like IBM and now with EY. I think what I try to do is find ways in which the clients we serve, and in my case, the Australian Taxation Office is my primary client, is working with those clients solve complex and difficult problems, but bringing digital and technology in helping them not just talk about it, but deliver it. And it's a privilege every day to work with an organisation like the ATO. I think government organisations can do bold and important work. Quite often we talk about what's happening in consumer, what's happening in retail or financial services. 
But actually, there's a whole lot of really good stuff that is happening within government. And I think the ATO is one such organisation. So I learned lots from them. And hopefully the work we do helps them deliver those the outcomes they seek. And, and it is a privilege. And we're doing quite a lot of leading edge work in the digital and data space. What's prepared me for this role? Uh, I've done similar roles. I've worked with the ATO through many organisations over a number of years. I've also done work in digital government that positions me well. And, and I think it's about the challenge of finding new and contemporary ways for organisations to to be and grow and transform. The one thing I've learned is the transformation journey never ends. It's you've got to be continually transformative, whether it's going to be about portals one day or now where we are in Gen AI, you've got to continuously change and continuously learn how you uh, embrace those technologies and those um, new ways of working. Mm-hmm. One of the IT companies I worked for, the owner and uh, CEO of the company said that he never planned more than five years out because technology is changing so quickly, there's just no point. You, you have to continually transform. Yeah, and I, so. and I think those five-year journeys are starting to be challenged in their own right because I mm. think there's even shorter time horizons now. But what within EY, we also talk about how do you think about the future and work back. And I think what I like about that is about where where's the world going to be in a point in time as opposed to just thinking about what your own organisational future is. If you understand how you're going to fit into that new world, you approach your transformation in a very different way. And I always think, even though I talk a lot about technology and digital transformation, it's ultimately about business transformation and making the lives of people better, whether that's in society or in your own organisation. You can't forget the human that's at the centre. That's right. And that's really driving everything that that we do. Yeah. Mm. And and I think more and more so as we go forward. And it's so challenging that when you're setting up your client for transformation, that you're really setting them up to be able to adapt to unknowns or what they don't know, what no one knows in the future and how how do you do that? Yeah, and, and, and I think it's about being comfortable with that level of ambiguity. If I think gone are the days where there's a, a target you set and you just want to achieve that target because there's going to be the next thing and the next thing. So you've got to be comfortable with the level of being uncomfortable. As long as you can see progress and you can give people successes and celebrate those success, successes along the journey, mm-hmm. that feels not just good, but it motivates you for the next challenge ahead. Mm-hmm. And I think whether that's in purely business transformation or process transformation or in technology, I think they're equally important. If anything, I think large technology programs can be very challenging because you may be waiting for an endpoint to deliver or a release that may take years to come. So you've got to find new ways, whether it's applying Agile, whether it's applying and having a minimal viable product that you go for that gives people confidence that it can be delivered and move forward into the next step. I do think sometimes though the danger is that you stay at the minimal viable product and you lose 
energy and steam. You've got to keep the steam going so that you can get it into a full-blown solution and not have a half-baked one sitting around on the side because you don't want to increase technical debt. You want to make sure that you're actually, as you go along this journey, are improving things, getting the outcomes you want and becoming more efficient and effective. Mm-hmm. So a delicate balance. A delicate balance mm, indeed. Yeah, and, and only with experience can you get that right. Yeah, and, and I think we all have scars and lessons we've learned and, and sometimes it's when you fail that you learn the most. So it's also how do we embrace a culture that allows you to try something and try to and try something else but not consider that that failure is a end in itself but really part of the journey. That's a really, really hard one when you're working for organisations that have uh, revenue expectations and outcomes expectations to to embrace failure. It, it is, mm. and I think government is particularly hard. I mean, we mm. are, you've got taxpayers' money that's going into mm. making sure we are a modern and contemporary government and that we're a digitally enabled one. But that does sometimes mean the appetite for things to go wrong is much less and we've got to find ways to navigate both the narrative but also supporting people through that transformative journey. Mm -hmm. So in addition to working with the Australian Taxation Office and the Australian Bureau of Statistics, you've also consulted with more socially focused government departments, the National Greenhouse and Energy Reporting Regulator, Department of Human Services, the Federal Department of Human Services, and the Victoria Department of Human Services. And in particular, supporting Victoria in its uh, accountability responding to the Commission on Child Protection. So a very emotionally charged area, very sensitive and critical to the fabric of our well-being in society. So how did you address that? It's it's a piece of work I did when I was with Booz and Company and it was after a Royal Commission around child protection Uh, and the particular project we worked on was around the governance and accountability that was part of that Royal, uh, part of that commission. It was fascinating because at that point the Department of Human Services in Victoria was Health and Human Services together and and I think the, the CEO at the time was an impressive woman and it was wonderful to see her in action, but she really wanted to find real and practical solutions. But it wasn't just about a centre trying to do it all. It was also about understanding each of the regional directors and how you brought them on the journey. And I remember one saying to me, the hardest thing is when you put a child into into a, into a home or into care and you don't know whether you're putting them into a further situation of vulnerability. There aren't easy answers in these situations. There was technology systems to support case management, but there's no perfect solution. And the case workers who have deep, deep experience in social wealth, social services and are social workers themselves are stretched. They're trying to do the best they can, mm. really looking to systems to augment what they do. And that's the same narrative today when you start to look at Gen AI and how might that augment what you do. It's not about taking away the human, 
the compassion or the need to have someone to engage with with a person or a family going through a very vulnerable situation. So there's some lessons from that that we should take into our world today. Mm, really difficult situation, really difficult. But it sounds like even though they're unrelated, they're related in a certain way because you've started at the end, what do we need to achieve? And you've almost worked backwards in terms of we have to get these results, how do we get there? So it's not starting with technology and saying this is a great idea. It's like why do we need it and what outcomes do we really want to achieve? Absolutely. And in that particular case it was getting the data to tell us a whole story. So whilst Mm. people knew the stories and that was really important, it was also about getting the data points and saying how can you actually get the data to serve those children and those families better? Because quite often it's in fragmented parts where legislation or other things may not allow you to share information across the boundaries. And I remember in that instance, sharing information between disability and housing or child protection wasn't necessarily as um, seamless. And then you look at the state versus the federal level and how do we share between the federal and state level. So real gnarly problems that I would say we probably still encounter today. Mm. Wicked problems. Wicked problems indeed. (laughs) Yeah. So as an extension of your IT work, you've also shared perspectives in areas such as workforce of the future and cognitive and AI in government and also related service delivery transformation in government towards achieving greater economic and social inclusion. So, again, a very, very social slant on the work you're doing. So would you like to talk about that? It's interesting because, as you say, even though I do a whole lot of work in tech and digital, Mm. but fundamentally my upbringing in South Africa, having grown up during apartheid, and and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about my work there, has is part of who I am. And so growing up and being an activist, being very active in student politics from a very young age, social justice has always been the thing that's motivated me and making sure we make a difference in the society in which we live. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, those are the things. So when I get to speak or get to do work, I'm trying to make sure we keep connected to, to, to the essence of why I think and what I can make a difference in in the society in which we live. Wow, very admirable. So you mentioned about coming from South Africa. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about that? So in South Africa, when you left university, you started working with Mobile Oil and then uh, joined IBM, were seconded to government at that time. And some of the key programs you worked on were very interesting. So 1995, in the post-democratic elections, you worked on the public participation program of South Africa's post-apartheid constitution. So again, not necessarily IT, but very social outcome-based work. And I think in that work too, there's no framework. Absolutely. To, to rely on. It's something completely new. So how did you approach that? Well, it's a team and we've, we had some incredible people. So this was part post the first democratic elections in 94 in South Africa. Nelson Mandela was released. The ANC was unbanned. Many of the organisational structures in civil society 
whilst they were there, were needing to be strengthened. The constitution had to change from the apartheid years. And at the time of the election, there was an interim constitution that was negotiated as part of what was called the CODESA process. And we needed to do to develop a new constitution. There was no framework. Um, we There was something called the Constitutional Assembly that was created, and I worked within the Secretariat of the Constitutional Assembly. That group did the public participation program that brought different parts of the South African society with the politicians that were negotiating the constitution. And that meant from the very far right to the very far left, having to come together. My particular role in the Constitutional Assembly was organising 13 public hearings that brought organised civil society together with the politicians. So that ranged from women, traditional authorities, business, youth, some really difficult ones. And I do remember when we were organising the youth public hearing, we had the far left and the far right of the youth coming together And that was the weekend that the 95 Rugby World Cup was taking place in the final, where everyone remembers Nelson Mandela coming onto the field on which Invictus is based. And my focus was really making sure we could get this public hearing happening the next day and going and seeing the game at some friends. So it's very, very special to me. But in the end... They're really big events. Um, there were very big events. Mm. And, and it's about the formation of a, of a society and how you recreate societies and, and shape shape the new society in which you want to belong in. So after you do something like that, it's really hard to compare anything else you do. But I think it's also quite a humbling experience because it's so formative to the lives of so many people. And that constitution-making process was really important. The constitution still stands today. In 94, at that first democratic election, we, you know, South Africa was a country that had a third of the list as women. Absolutely, we won parity and we want to get to 50. But to think about that, that was a few decades ago. And many countries in the developed world and the global north never achieved that. So what do you think that was that drove that? That it openness a, and modern approach. I think it was a very deliberate pace. I mean, South Africa is based on a list system. It was very deliberate that every third candidate on the list was a woman. So it was very deliberate on all sides that they would do that. And I think it was the fact that women were part of the resistance movement, was part of the progressive movement in getting South Africa to where they were. When you look at women marching in in the 1950s to get rid of black women having to carry a pass in order to come into the cities or in all black people carrying a pass really they've had such a critical role so i think it was a recognition of that that you can't have any can't have an equal society without women being equal have they absolutely achieved it and are there challenges today yes they still are but the intent i think was there Equally, the ability to control your own body, as well as the, you know, in the constitution enshrining the right to same-sex marriage was there. And those were a few decades before even Australia got to that. That's quite astounding. It's just incredible that the country was so advanced. And, I mean, it still has a long, long way to go, but I think some of those cornerstones 
of democracy, cornerstones of a, of a society that is equal, that supports equity and social justice, at least still exist, which gives me hope, even though there's been corruption, there's been other things that happen, as in many other countries, some of those cornerstones remain. Mm. And so do you think it's because it, South Africa had to fight so hard for equality that, and, and I think, as you said, that they realised that they needed to look at equality across the society, not just in one area of, of black or white. Yeah. It was more encompassing than that. It absolutely was. It wasn't just about the liberties of on race. It was the liberties on so many fronts and, and gender was one of them, um, yeah. among many others. So, yes, I felt absolutely privileged to have been part of that journey and it still remains very, very important. Um, yeah, amazing, amazing experience. So you mentioned that you've always been an activist and, and you have a sense of wanting to support the community and society. So how did that start? What drove that? Because it seems that you had that from a very young age. I did. I think when I was at school, I'm trying to remember the dates, I'm going to give my age away, but I think it would have been in the 1980s. There were some there were some protests while I was at school. I might have been in what would be equivalent to probably year six, year eight. I can't remember now. And students stopped going to classrooms in order to protest for some and for for a lot of what was going on during the apartheid years. And that's a very strong tradition in South Africa when we had the 1976 massacre of students. That kind of really grew the student population to take take a role in bringing about justice. And so I was part of that. And when I went to university, I equally participated in student politics. I think it was a very particular time, but the fight for injustice or the fight to get to end apartheid was very real. No one I thought when we were at school or at university that we would actually see Nelson Mandela be released or some of those organisations being unbanned. But the one thing is everything may seem, and I think Nelson Mandela said, everything is impossible until you kind of make it possible and and I think that story and of that of the country is an example of that mm. and, and really mobilized yeah so when society. you see exactly mm. and when you see Greta Thunberg or what happens in in, in the protests around climate change and I think absolutely we need young people because I think they are, that is the hope um, mm. of needing to create a new society these things don't just happen these things take people to stand up, be counted and come together in a group and as a collective to make change happen. And you've witnessed that change does happen, which is Absolutely. really interesting. Yeah. Mm. So mm. so contrasting that to Australia, where I went to school roughly around the same time, there's no way that we would have protested. I think we've over the last few years there's been schools protesting on the environment or different things, but... In my era, it just wouldn't have happened. So it's in contrast to what you experienced. Yeah, it, it is interesting that. I mean, sometimes when either the deprivation or the need or the challenge is so much is large, there is no other choice. You don't even think of it as a as a as an active choice. You think of it as absolutely that's the only option you have. 
And if you want to bring about change, you've got to do that. And I did find coming to, to, to Australia incredible, but I did find it being initially many years ago when I came in, I would have been 90, end of 98, 99, it was still felt more of an administrative transformation, having come from an experience which was quite fundamental in that you were changing society. But I do think over the years since I've been here, there's fundamental transformation needed. And when I look at the voice and I look at Indigenous people and the need to come together and recognise the huge role that Indigenous people play and their rightful place in this country, I think it's so important. And those struggles still exist. So if anything, I hope we can do more than just mm -hmm. the administrative side. These are about people's lives and doing the right thing. And I am a strong believer that in the end, doing the right thing does matter because it does, whether it creates a better world or a better working world, like we say in EY, though that is the legacy you want to leave. All of our children and the, and the society that follows is going to be based on those foundations. Mm. So I still believe very strongly in that. And, and it's good for your children to see that too and to know that those things are important. The least we can do is hope that they see that <laughs> and not just sit at their computers and game. But I, I, I feel like maybe there will be a threat of that or, or they'll create their own. Well, because I suppose they haven't experienced what you have and they don't understand what you've had to fight for to bring that change around. I, I think there's an element of, it, there's definitely that. But I think when you start to witness what's going on within Israel and Gaza and that now coming into into on television and now whether it's all the stuff happening whether it's in Africa in other parts of the world or Ukraine I, I think our children are seeing a different side and having to think more deeply beyond the access to things that they may have and and I still am very hopeful that the young people that that are here today will play a significant role in changing the society in which we live beyond the populism and the populist views that may exist. Mm. And maintain that transformation. I, I as you genuinely hope The so. constant transformation yeah. that we do need. So what do you think are the biggest was the biggest adjustment you had when you moved from South Africa to Australia? Gosh, probably at different levels. In some ways, I, I moved from IBM to IBM here, which was amazing. So I at least knew the organisation and, and the people I worked with were incredibly welcoming, many of whom remain deep, deep friends still today. It, it's just the a shift, I think, also in mindset. I grew, I grew up in a time, participated in things that were always on, that everything mattered, everything felt urgent. And coming into Australia where I didn't know a whole lot of people, starting out to build a career, me and my partner, he was starting a new job. It was different. I had to almost go, I felt like a bit of a go slow until I started the first engagement, which actually happened to be with the Australian Taxation Office. So my journey into Australia was certainly that was my first client engagement. And I, it's incredible that I still work with them today. Well, so it's your impression of Australia that we're relaxed? <laughs> at first at first glance, uh, mm -hmm. I do think there's an element of that. But when you dig deeper into the society, there's many, many other things at play. There's always the sporting 
larrikin kind of view of Australia, but I also think there's a deeper, more serious side to Australia. There's a very compliant side to Australia, but I do think there's some great Australians that have made a huge difference as well. And even on the journey to uh, on apartheid, many, many Australians helped along that journey. Mm-hmm. It, it was funny. I was talking to an ex-colleague, both of ours, just recently. I mentioned that I was catching up with you soon, and he told me the story that his father used to be your headmaster at the school you went to in South Africa, and you're both living here in Canberra. Who would have thought? <laughs> and, and we both grew up in a very small town in South Africa, so the chances that we would be in Canberra working in the same organisation for the for a number of years was, would be almost unthinkable, but we have, and we still remain good friends today. And what a small world it is. And, yes. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was so funny. It, it just completely debunks that the six degrees of separation, I think it was one degree of separation. In that case, yeah. And, I mean, again, that, and that's whatever we do here within Australia or in the different pockets where we may live in the world, the connectedness of the world is, I think, even greater now than it was then. And what we do here matters to another part of the world. And I always think it's not just about building, it's not just about building better societies in Australia, it's about building a better world. Mm-hmm. And a better place for, a better place for, for everyone, everyone. To, to feel welcome. Yeah. Well, so it's been uh, so interesting talking to you today. I thought we were going to talk about IT, but I think we've yeah. certainly changed the topic there to more social issues. And it, it's been really lovely to talk about that. And again, I can totally see why you've won the Wicked Women of the Year Award. And, and congratulations. Again, it's such a fantastic award and it, it's great to be able to champion the causes for women. Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to get to talk with you. You've been a Great interviewer, and I look forward to to hearing it when it's when it's put right. So we're not so done yet. Oh, I, there you go. I have one, one more question. So you know so much now about the world, and you've had an impact on the world in a big way. So, based on what you know now, going back to that young girl at school with your friends, father as the headmaster. <laughs> In a small, tiny town in South Africa, what advice would you give yourself? I would give myself, the one thing is not to have any regrets, and and I hope I don't. But I also think it's about just the sense of self-belief, that if something matters, and, and it's not just about the individual, it's about, for me, the broader group the broader society in South Africa we used to say an injury to one is an injury to all mm. and I, I think having that sense of self and the sense of values and what matters is to tell that little girl keep going keep believing in that and who knows where the world will take you mm, that's really beautiful and uh, I can see that you've lived by that so <laughs> thank you Jane thank you so much it, it's been, been such a pleasure for listening and tuning in to the women count podcast if you really enjoyed this episode and would like to support us please subscribe to the show and provide a star rating 
Watch out for new episodes on leadership and data science. And if you want to connect with the tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womeninbigdata.org. Bye-bye for now.